Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Escape the ordinary with Green and Black's Organic Chocolate. Sponsor of the Women's Podcast. A rich, intense chocolate to savor. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle, and I am an optimist, as many of you listening to us over the years might have gathered. I get it from my mother, Anne Ingle, and though we do not have a final result as I speak to you now, I fully believe that however long it takes, however many legal challenges, Joe Biden is going to become the 46th President of America. And while Donald Trump, yes, has increased his vote, from 2016, which is just mind-boggling, he politically is looking more and more like toast. And the nightmarish past four years can maybe start to be a memory. The racist, sexist, narcissistic, evil man in the White House will hopefully be gone. Now, like many of you, I've been having flashbacks and a bit of post-traumatic stress disorder from the memories of four years ago. I remember waking up on my sofa at, I don't know what it was, seven or eight o'clock in the morning and watching Trump take to the podium to announce his victory. I was so upset at the time. Um, my children, they didn't want to go to school because I was crying so much and I had told them Hillary would win. I said it would be a hill slide. Uh, so they were devastated and I was devastated and it felt like so many of us were. Uh, there was nothing for it but for the women's podcast to call what we called an emergency podcast, which we assembled four years ago with Kathy Sheridan and Simon George and others. It was a wake. It was a funeral. It was a tear stained, tired and emotional and very angry podcast. What we didn't know was that the next four years was going to be even worse than we could possibly imagine. We didn't know what would happen with children in cages and we didn't know about the white supremacy and how bad that was and his right wing views and the lies, the lies, the constant lies. We didn't know how bad the misogyny was. We knew that he wouldn't care and that he was lacking in empathy, but we didn't know how much Trump didn't care, even when his country is in a, the midst of a pandemic, how he still fails to help people and do the right thing. We didn't know exactly how lacking in empathy he really was. So in this time, four years later, we decided we needed to assemble again. We got Suzanne Lynch, our Irish Times Washington correspondent, human rights lawyer Simon George, who was with us the last time, and feminist giant and activist and author Mona Altahawi, hosted by Cathy Sheridan. And this time, while the result is not certain, there is, I like to think anyway, more hope. But I suppose that depends on who you talk to. When you think of the 70 million, nearly 70 million votes for Trump, it, these people voted for sexism, they voted for racism, for cruelty, for callousness, for misogyny. So really, as Mona El-Tahawi says in this episode, we need to be careful about celebrating. I can't celebrate simply and naively having Kamala Harris as vice president. I'm here to wreck the party for everyone. And I'm happy to be the feminist that wrecks the party for everyone because 
unless we wreck the party for everyone, we will celebrate the own Amy Coney Barrett, who is delivering a patriarchal agenda to the fascist fucks that I insist we fight during, before and after the election. So I think after listening to this conversation, which I know you're going to find really interesting um, and invigorating, is that, yes, optimism is good, but it's tenacious optimism we need, the kind that Mona stands for. And her optimism is feminism. And that's what propels her forward. And that's what keeps her eye on the ball. This conversation between Mona, Simon, Suzanne and Cathy I think is unlike probably other election coverage you're going to hear. And I say that in the best possible way. I really hope you enjoy it and do email us the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. Tell us how you're feeling about everything or get in touch with us on social at IT Women's Podcast. Here we are assembling again on a different day four years later. Okay, I'm going to try to raise the tone of this conversation by quoting from a column I read yesterday in The Guardian by columnist Marina Hyde. She wrote, With the future and democratic reputation of the American Republic hanging in the balance, this is not an occasion for bombast. Rather, it is time to reach humbly in the darkness, seeking only to summon such measured words as convey the intense dignity of this moment. In short, I think we all feel the hand of history on our pussies which I think kind of sums up how many people are feeling, really. Um, so, Suzanne, uh, can you tell us where the hand of history is right now, as far as you can see? Well, look, as I am talking to you guys, um, news from the front here in Washington is that, you know, it's not over. Uh, the counting is still going on. And uh, Donald Trump still has a path to victory. Uh, Joe Biden is more likely to win this by, a, you know, that that is for sure. But um, what's happened overnight has been very interesting is that um, Arizona, uh, this was called by Fox News actually on election night and Donald Trump reportedly was furious and called Rupert Murdoch and there was war at the White House over this. Now it looks like the Trump campaign may have had a point because now as the votes are coming in here at the end, uh, Biden's lead is narrowing in Arizona And the Trump campaign have argued that the last set of votes that are being counted would have been Trump votes. And this seems to be what's happening. Now, look, you know, he's still got a mountain to climb there. uh, But this is now dragging on uh, right into Thursday night in Arizona. Um, So that's happening in Arizona. At the other end of the country in Georgia, really interesting what's happening there. Donald Trump looked like he'd won that state. But now the opposite's happening. Uh, you're seeing that Joe Biden is making up ground as those final votes are coming in Georgia. So fascinating what's happening there. Um, So it's really going down to the wire. It's a cliche, but it is. And one thing to say, Cathy, I mean, in Ireland, we're very used to all, uh, you know, watching the count. We've got the single transferable voting system and, you know, Irish citizens are pretty well informed about that. That doesn't really happen here as much. You usually get a a result on election night. But because of the... uh, increase in absentee ballots this year, it's just taking longer. So it's quite interesting just to watch it here, watch how the media are handling it, watch how everyone's handling it in a sense. But look, Joe Biden is edging his way towards victory. But just to to stress it, it's not over yet. Okay, you're putting the fear of God into me now. Suzanne, have we any idea at all yet when this is going to play out? Well, uh, the counting is going to continue until Friday, definitely. Uh, In Pennsylvania, for example, which is a crucial state, um, so, but Donald Trump now is launching a number of lawsuits and, 
this could go on for a while, Cathy, you know, because uh, we all remember what happened in Florida in 2000. The Supreme Court basically weighed in there and ordered the recount to stop and George W. Bush won it. Um, so really, what usually happens in American elections is that somebody wins and the other person calls to concede. Donald Trump shows no sign of doing that. And technically, you know, if he doesn't do that, you know, when when is the election called? Now, there are some deadlines. So, for example, in early December, not to get too technical, there's some deadlines. So by the 14th of December, all the electoral college, uh, college votes have to be, you know, transmitted at that point. You know, the Constitution says a new president will be sworn in on the 20th of January. It will. <laughs> it'll happen. Um, but I think a lot will depend on the next 48 hours. And if, if Joe Biden really, you know, sweeps the board, this could, uh, you know, this could, could wrap up pretty quickly. Uh, if not, and if Donald Trump just wants to contest it, it could go on, you know, a couple, a few weeks, really. It really could. But we'll see. Now, Suzanne, Biden has surprised us with Wisconsin and and um, and Michigan. Uh, that was a surprise. Uh, Arizona was a total bonus. Um, in terms of the path to victory, what are we looking for today now? We're, we're sort of the, the Arizona versus Georgia thing. We have to wait for that. Are we likely to see a result from that or at least an indication from those today, which is Thursday? On Arizona, uh, Arizona is going to update us late on Thursday night, their time. Um, So, of course, Arizona is the far side of the country from Ireland. So really, Irish time, it'll be Friday morning before we hear anything from Arizona. We should hear something from Nevada. Again, interesting because Joe Biden looks like he's winning that, but Donald Trump is now saying, oh, maybe he's going to do well there. And they have, in dramatic fashion, sent an email this morning to journalists saying a major announcement is coming in in Las Vegas and that the Trump campaign is uh, holding a press conference there this morning. So we were waiting for for bated breath. What seems to have happened now is that Donald Trump, believe it or not, he hasn't been seen actually for a while. So he gave that premature victory speech in the White House on election night. And we didn't hear from, see him at all on Wednesday. We're now into Thursday. You know, there's nothing on his public schedule. What he seems to be doing is sending out his surrogates onto the media airways and also to key states. So last, yesterday, we had this bizarre scene of Rudy Giuliani uh, surrounded by Eric Trump, Donald Trump's son and his wife, Lara Trump, and some other people talking about fraud in Pennsylvania. It looks like they're going to have a similar kind of big press event in Las Vegas today. Now, whether that is winning him any, I mean, it seems to be a very bad idea putting Giuliani out there for lots of reasons. Even though, I mean, technically, you know, he's every right to challenge in certain states if, you know, that's the way the process is going to work here, if it's going to work. But um, but Trump has just, for the moment, been tweeting. And as I say, you know, we haven't seen much of him. We mightn't see Biden again today on Thursday either. He gave, obviously, that very kind of presidential speech uh, on Wednesday evening without claiming vec- victory, but kind of quietly saying that he was uh, confident of victory. Um, so it could kind of all go quiet because I think Friday is when we're going to get a bit new wave of, of big votes from those states. Suzanne, so far, where have the surprises come from? What what has surprised you? OK, well, look, being honest, and I'm I'm kind of grappling with this. You know, a lot of people are saying, OK, Joe Biden looks like he's going to win this. He's got record breaking votes, 71 million votes or whatever. We don't know yet. But Donald Trump has done quite well, too. That is the reality here. And he's increased his vote from 2016. And we have to wait for this to play out. But there's been, I think there's been a few disappointments for Democrats. Uh, Donald Trump won Florida. And really, his uh, support among Latino voters now is a major problem for Democrats. 
uh, in that county in Miami-Dade. I was down there as well uh, myself when they were canvassing and there was obviously a problem with turnout and motivation on the Democratic side down there. Um, also, I think for Democrats, it's disappointing, uh, very disappointing how they've done the congressional races. Uh, Nancy Pelosi looks like her majority is going to be smaller now. She had spoken about winning more seats. Again, two seats in the Miami area. Um, the, we all remember the women's wave in 2018. Like it doesn't seem to have happened this time to the same extent. And in Texas, where there's been huge demographic changes uh, and you've got like, you know, suburbs that have seen a lot of immigration to suburbs, you know, middle class um, workers who'd maybe be kind of independently minded, but really don't like Donald Trump. Uh, a lot of those seats, like they didn't really go for Democrats in huge numbers in the end. So I think that's a problem for Democrats, because if you're not going to win against Donald Trump decisively, who are you going to win against? Because, you know, I think the Texas and all that, in saying that, look, Joe Biden, Michigan and Wisconsin, big wins for him. But again, margins were pretty tight here. Uh, but Joe Biden, to be fair to him, will say there was a debate here for so long about is he the person to lead the Democratic Party? He's old, he's white, he's male. You know, he can make the argument out, look, I won, I won those Rust Belt states for you. And they're actually what it came down to. Because you know what, with all your talk about Texas and, you know, it, it didn't, didn't happen. So um, I do think there's food for thought there for Democrats about the performance, I have to say. So, you know, Trump is, he's still very popular, Cathy, among a, a lot of millions of Americans here, if that's the reality. I'm brought back to 2016 because this is all making me queasy, Suzanne, Mona and Simon, because we in the Women's Podcast had an emergency podcast back then and there was terrible upset. I mean, I remember was falling asleep on the sofa and waking up to hear that Florida had gone, which at the time was it was that was probably far more significant than Biden's loss of Florida the other night, because it just I just got a sense then that Hillary, this was not going to happen. Um, and we were frightened. Um, our panelists talked about feeling nauseous, phys- physically sick. They were in tears. People couldn't believe this was real. Um, and I remember, Simone, you in particular, uh, you talked about how you responded to it. And we're going to play a clip of this now. I rang um, Sharon O'Halloran, the CEO of Safe Ireland, who I work with, and uh, on FaceTime, and both of us just um, sobbed. Mm. Uh, I think between... Um, talking to her and the other women that I work with and that I know, um, I cried for longer than I've cried since, um, yeah, since Mark broke his back, probably. So, yeah. Well, Simon, that was pretty dramatic. Um, And the funny thing is we weren't that surprised (laughs) because it was all so terrible that day. How are you feeling this time now? Well, actually, can I just say, Cathy, listening back to that, much of those tears were were from anger because I knew this was coming. I'd been working very intensely with women who work in domestic violence and sexual assault and in dismantling patriarchal structures. And we had recognised that he is the classic case of an abuser. He abuses you um, while saying to your face that he isn't. This was classic dominance culture playing out. And... Every time I said to the women I was working with or to people, I think he's going to win for all of the reasons the dominance culture survives um, or has survived despite our efforts, I was told that I was wrong. So it was like a second layer of gaslighting on top of it. But we knew, we recognised what we were seeing and we convinced ourselves, I'm saying as white 
women feminists, that we weren't, that we had made bigger strides um, and that it would lead to a, a different result. So in fact, um, I now feel much more sanguine about it. I, I'm not actually that interested in electoral politics because I think it is a distraction from what's really political and that is how we organise ourselves as a culture, how we organise ourselves politically. And at the moment, this is still dominance culture. It's still patriarchal. What matters is where you are on the rung of the ladder in this hierarchy. And we can't yet turn our minds towards connection and interdependence and, and, and equality. And this is why 70 million people have voted for him again. I'm not remotely surprised. And I'm no longer in grief. I'm still raging, but I'm no longer uh, in grief about that. Yeah. Mona, do you remember how you felt four years ago? Was it anger? Was it grief? What was it? Oh, it was sheer and utter rage. It, and, and you know, I, I love that quote that you began our conversation with, because I want to riff off that quote, because through this riff is where I stand. And if all pussies are equal, some pussies are more equal than others. And my pussy now is speaking to you as the pussy that belongs to a woman of Muslim descent who was most definitely not white and who, having spent 20 years in the United States, I moved here uh, to the United States in the year 2000, just before George Bush became president. I understand now that every four years, Americans develop this electoral amnesia where they feel that they've just got this blank slate where they've been reborn again into this innocence that doesn't exist. And they refuse to acknowledge that the United States of America is a white supremacist and now fully fascist country that is on the threshold of a theocracy. And so I'm looking now at how I felt back then, enraged, how I feel now, continuously enraged. And I'm looking around and regardless of who wins, Donald Trump, has re, has been elected or was chosen by an estimated 68 million to 70 million Americans who fully understand what he is. He is a fascist and a white supremacist, and they want that. And so I want everyone to shift the focus away from Donald Trump and to understand that Donald Trump is a useful idiot. And he's a useful idiot for the conservative program in the United States. And this is a program that was begun and plotted for in the early 1970s, and the Conservatives have won. If you in Ireland were successful in your revolution against the Catholic Church, your equivalents here in the United States have lost because the Conservatives in the United States have won. The Supreme Court has a majority, and that was helped along by useful idiot Donald Trump. Mitch McConnell has won, he being the head of the Republicans, the Senate has not been flipped by the Democrats and the, the, Geo, the Republican Party has won more seats in the House. So I'm looking at the United States now. And even if Donald Trump goes, it doesn't matter because what he helped the conservatives bring along is most definitely here. And they have won. We are fucked. I do not say this lightly. I say fuck a lot, but we are fucked. There's a Supreme Court majority that is going to give them what they want. Mitch McConnell is already vowing that he will wreck any kind of liberal, quote unquote, uh, formation of Biden's cabinet. And I'm, there is nothing to celebrate other than the fact that Trump, the man himself, 
might possibly go. So being this woman now, whose pussy belongs to a, a woman, a cisgender woman of Muslim descent, the Muslim ban, I don't know if the Muslim ban is going to go. The children in cages in concentration camps on the border, I don't know if those children are going to, well, more than 500 children will most likely not be reunited with their children. You in Ireland understand the horror of family separations. And I'm sitting there thinking, looking at the women in Poland who were trying to create this revolution that you succeeded in in Ireland. And I'm telling my fellow Americans, look what awaits you. The fascist theocratic fucks have won. So I, I, I want the name Trump to go, but I want people to understand that the war has to continue against white supremacy, against fascism, against misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, ableism, everything. I am enraged. I continue to be enraged. Suzanne, I was looking at that New York Times exit poll, which asked people, I think it was an exit poll anyway, which showed a massive divide between people who felt worse off or better off over the years. And of course, it's blue versus red, this divide. 70% of Trump supporters felt, feel they're better off today. Um, and the same number of Democrats say they feel they're worse off. But I suppose that some of the figures that really grabbed me was, say, a quarter of the polls think racism isn't a problem or just a minor one. And 82% of those are Trump supporters. A third of the polls think climate change isn't a problem. 84% of those are Trump's. 42% of the polls think abortion should be illegal in most or all cases. And more, more than three quarters of them were Trump's. Now, what struck me about that is that the figures aren't that high for those who, you know, for example, a, qu a quarter think racism isn't a problem, just a minor one. Third of the poll think climate change isn't a problem. 42% think abortion should be illegal or in most or all cases. But there are still minorities. There are still minorities of people who hold those views. And yet Trump has managed to outplay the other side. No matter what happens in this, as, as, as Mona and Simon have pointed out, no matter what happens with, with, between Trump and Biden, that's a fact. What do you yes. think has happened? Yeah, I mean, one thing to note without getting again too technical is this whole system of elections here, of, of the electoral college system, and more importantly of the Senate. That is a problem. It's not one person, one vote in this country, because your vote is more valuable if you live in Wyoming, in a sparsely populated place in America, than if you live in New York City. Because the way the electoral college system works, you know, it's by state. So if you win your state and then on the Senate, on the Senate side, it's even more of an issue because the Senate is now geared. You're absolutely right, Cathy, by saying the Senate is not reflecting the reality of the country. The country is not as conservative as the U.S. Senate suggests it is because each state gets two senators. California gets two senators and Wyoming gets two senators. So your vote is worth much more in Wyoming. So that's a whole structural problem in America that um, really, I mean, there's, I don't think there's enough debate about it here. People just say, oh, that's the way it is, the Constitution, you know. But that is the problem. And that is exactly, you are, you are right um, on that. And one of the disappointments for Democrats, and Mona's absolutely right, about losing, you know, not doing well in Congress, both in the House and the Senate, is that, like, I would have thought, I mean, we could have a debate about how change happens. But one thing I think that may have happened, or there's a bit of discussion about, is giving statehood to Washington, D.C., so Washington, D.C. is not a state. People here are always, you know, protesting, saying no taxation and representation. 
And um, so if Democrat, you know, if if they came into the fold, you would be significantly boosting the Democratic vote. That might have got support, I think. Now, it, it it's always, you know, a big hurdle to jump to start changing things like that. But, you know, the Democrats could have maybe started having a conversation about that if they'd won the Senate. Now it's not going to happen. I mean, Republicans are completely now dominant for the next, whatever, two years, um, perhaps four years. Uh, so it's, you know, we're losing opportunity there on that. And, you know, th- th- that's the issue as well for Biden now, if he does get in. How is he going to govern? The Democratic Party has an, you know, is trying to manage different factions within its party. They had this whole discussion a year ago. How do you, win, you know, are you better getting behind Mr. Old Guy, who's going to win the moderate supporters in Michigan, which, as I say, he might argue yes. Or are you better going with the AOC and the more radical aspects of the party that are going to energize young people, that are going to get them out? Um, so the more left-wing parts of the party and Bernie Sanders are parts of that have essentially put those divides up to one side during this campaign saying, you know what, let's just get behind Biden and let's get Trump out. But once now the election is over, they're all going to come back out again. And already Nancy Pelosi is facing questions from people like AOC about her leadership uh, because they didn't do as well as she thought. You know, so you're going to have this whole debate and then if Biden gets in, as someone was saying there, you know, who's he going to appoint to his cabinet? Let's talk about Elizabeth Warren, a progressive woman. Wall Street are shaking in their boots at the prospect of her getting a senior job in the administration, although it look and maybe Treasury Secretary, although it looks like because of, again, smaller political issues like her, she's got a Senate seat in Massachusetts. So if she they appointed her, well, then that would open up and Democrats aren't confident at the moment that they might win that. So um, that's going to be the next front in this country, I think, about how Biden as president is going to govern. And to be fair to Biden, again, the big, big debate here about why have we ended up with a, a man of that age representing this country and the Democratic Party. But he has kind of, he knows which way the country goes. You know, he went out ahead of of Obama, who was actually quite angry, Obama's people, on gay marriage. Like he knew, his, uh, you know, he, he he's ready to move a bit. And I think that's a, a good characteristic. Um, his views on abortion, he say, has evolved as as the country has evolved. Um, so you know, he's definitely more to the left, I think, than many people might might have expected. M- maybe even Clinton in some ways, like economically and stuff. So you know, let's see. Okay, let's see if he gets in. But if he does, how is he going to govern? But Imola is absolutely right. The fact that he doesn't, if he's not going to have a majority in the Senate, it's going to be very limited about what he can do. Yeah. Um, for all, Simone, that we talk about that level of politics not mattering, really, there is one reason, a few reasons to be cheerful. One is that um, Biden, for example, this time could not have run a male vice presidential candidate uh, running mate uh, because I think something has changed in the air about that. And I sense that Kamala Harris could be a bit of a game changer. Yeah, again, you know, I think unless we deal with the fact that, as Mona said, nearly 70 million Americans voted arguably against their own best interest. They voted for, in a way that endorsed sexual assault, the demeaning of women, racism of black people and people of colour, of children in cages, of the sick and the dying. I'm not sure that a woman vice president even goes near what we need to understand to really understand why that many people have voted in the way that they have voted and that they voted it that way in 2016. I don't think we're, we're any 
closer to that until we really understand that this is about dominance for dominance sake, even if it is against your own self-interest. If staying in a, pl- a position of dominance makes you feel safe and not if those who you perceive to be beneath you, people of colour, black people, women, suddenly are above you, you, you feel afraid and therefore you swing in the other direction. We're going to be dealing with this in another four years and in another four years. And this, this, is, this is the real thing that we need to understand. Green and Black's Organic Chocolate, a selection of ethically sourced flavours combined with a rich cocoa intensity. Mona, I'm looking for a reason to be cheerful here. Is the fact that a woman of colour maybe become the, the next vice president, is that not a good sign, both to little girls and to the world at large? Well, I mean, it, it depends on what you want those symbols to represent, because, you know, I'm an anarchist feminist who agrees completely with Simon about having to work around electoral politics. Electoral politics are not the end-all, be-all. I think there are much greater things that we need as a human society generally to bring about change. I'm also a feminist who does not believe in supporting a woman just because she's a woman. And, the you know, 2016 was kind of a mandate on misogyny, right? At the end of 2016, we could sit back and say, you know what, America's a misogynist country, they wouldn't vote for this woman. But, you know, I wasn't a big fan of Hillary Clinton. I, I, I do not support most of her politics. She does not represent me. So my solidarity with her simply because the two of us are cisgender women uh, is ridiculous. I don't believe in elevating women to positions just simply because they're women, you know. Mona, can I just stop you there? It would have meant keeping Trump out of the White House, who has, we've described him now as, a, as a, a vile human being. Yes. Hillary absolutely had her flaws. Yes. But she would have kept Trump out of the White House. But, and, and this is exactly, this goes to the heart of electoral politics, especially as long as they continue in the way that all of us now as panellists have said, in that we're constantly asked to choose the best of of the evils. And that's not how I want our life to be determined by having to choose, sit there and say, okay, who is the least worst of the candidates? Yes, of course, I wanted Trump to not become president. But as I said earlier, I also recognize the conservative program that the United States is under the clutches of because of electoral politics, because of the Supreme Court, because of the Senate, because of the House. So Hillary Clinton was a problem, but misogyny is also a problem. And so and this is why I'm saying here on this women's podcast, I do not. It's not as simple as saying, oh, I will support the woman just because she's a woman. We've seen so many women in the Republican Party who are there upholding patriarchy, not dismantling it. So when you ask me about Kamala Harris or you ask me about Hillary Clinton, my litmus test for any women anywhere, I mean, look at Amy Coney Barrett, who was just appointed a Supreme Court justice for Trump. I certainly do not support her. I call her the five-star general of the patriarchy. And I call white women who vote for Donald Trump foot soldiers of the patriarchy. I have no allegiance to women simply because they're fellow women. So if we had a black feminist on this panel, she would be able to discuss the many manifestations of the meaning of Kamala Harris. So I, I, I am black in some aspects and not black in many others. I'm not even going to get in, into the complications of what blackness means in a country like the United States. But I'm looking at the history of Kamala Harris and Kamala Harris is not 
a leftist. I am. Kamala Harris has a, has a record as a, uh, as a prosecutor who does not represent most of my politics. But at the end of the day, it is important to have a black woman in a position of power in the United States. Yes. So I want to complicate those questions, those questions of isn't it great to have a black woman as vice president? The simple and naive answer is yes. The much more complicated and necessary and difficult um, um, answer is yes, but... And it's yes and many buts, because that's the United States right now. If misogyny was on the ballot in 2016, white supremacy and fascism are on the ballot in 2020. And in a country like the United States today, yes, it's important a black woman is there. But what are this black woman's policies? For some black women want a black woman in power, fine. But there, there's also Stacey Abrams, whose politics are also very different to Kamala Harris. So this is why I insist, you know, the, one of the things that have necessarily complicated the results this time around is people are like, oh, my God, how could Hispanics vote for Trump? Well, we've got to unpack what the Hispanic vote is. Hispanics aren't monolithic. There are white Hispanics and there are Hispanics who are not white and there are black Hispanics. So this is this is why I can't celebrate simply and naively having Kamala Harris as vice president. I'm here to wreck the party for everyone. And I'm happy to be the feminist that wrecks the party for everyone, because unless we wreck the party for everyone, we will celebrate the Amy Coney Barrett, who is delivering a patriarchal agenda to the fascist fucks that I insist we fight during, before and after the election. Can I just add to that? Also, if we, and sorry to, um, sorry, not sorry to ruin the cheerfulness, but if we over-celebrate these wins and don't look at the substance of them, we end up where we ended up in, in 2016 being surprised. Um, I spent some time in New York last year and at a number of um, seminars at Columbia about feminism and their discontents. And they were talking about how from the 70s, there was this climb of female CEOs and female lawyers um, in senior positions, and then the 90s, it plateaued. And uh, the women of my generation who were qualifying at that time were talking about the fact that we achieved these positions that are symbolic, you know, that were these huge leaps ahead of where our mothers had been um, to find ourselves sexually assaulted and harassed and uh, underpaid and not actually accommodated other than a, in a symbolic way like that and that we are that we need to be very careful about the the appearance of the dismantling of patriarchy when in fact it is alive and well and thriving off the no look turning your face constantly look at what you've achieved look at what you've achieved look at how much has changed when that isn't for everybody that's a very middle class white model of what um, success and equality means and that it isn't for everybody. Not everybody was brought along in those gains that we made. And in fact, um, it, it, it has incorporated itself into those dominant structures. And, and actually, just come in on that, Cathy, just for a second. Sorry to digress a bit, but actually Barack Obama is a classic example of what Simone is talking about there. You know, here was the symbolic black president and it was like, oh, right, we, we've, we've reached that goal now. It's great, isn't it? No, it wasn't. I mean, as we saw over the last year, the protests that emerged after the George Floyd killing, you know, he he was very much just a symbol. How many black people are in Congress? How many black people are in positions of power? You know, 
Barack Obama was a very specific kind of person, as Mona absolutely says. There, there are different. When you're talking about race in America, you know it's heterogeneous. He was, you know, there was there was lots of theories about Michelle Obama. Why she was so popular was that she was really the African American black woman, you know, whose whose ancestors were slaves, you know, grew up in South Side of Chicago. Whereas, you know, there was a sense, you know, Barack Obama was, you know, a lot of people, white people accepted him. And, and some people actually in the black community felt that Obama didn't do enough for them, that he wasn't quite black enough, essentially. But he is an example uh, of exactly what Simone's saying, that people can be, it's tokenism in some cases, it's symbolic, but really it's about much more structural change at different levels of society to actually change the society, not just who's at, at the top. And Suzanne, what are people saying on the ground there? Are you having these discussions with people there who are saying, really, this is just a sideshow, it's a circus, I despise them all, so here's what we're talking about. Are you hearing Democrats talking about, I mean, for example, realistically, anybody from the left or a woman probably would not have been elected this year. So what are they suggesting as an alternative? What structures are they thinking? Is there real hope that something will happen here to change things? Well, I mean, one of the issues is that the turnout has been very big. So in a way, you could see that is America. I mean, turnout generally in elections in America is quite low. So, you know, that's a positive thing. More people are taking part in the democratic process and voting is becoming more accessible maybe for people. And that's been a whole issue on the race side that Barack Obama has been really focused on, actually, since he's he finished up in the White House. Um, so, but of course, as I say, yeah, more votes for Joe Biden, but also more votes for Donald Trump. Um, I think this is a very broad stroke here, but, you know, again, picking up what Mona said about the deep culture war, really, that is happening in America. You know, most people are voting for presidents on those kind of cultural issues, really on the right or the left. I don't really buy that it's the economy stupid. I, I don't know. I mean, it is there, but actually, you know, most people, are, a lot of people are voting for Donald Trump because they, they about abortion is hugely divisive issue in this country. They are ready to put away all their qualms about Trump because they're going to get the conservative judges and justices on, which has already happened. That's why a lot of those people are voting for him. Um, and secondly, on, on the left, on the Democratic side, it's about the kind of America, the more inclusive America that the Democratic Party represents. That's why people are voting Democrat. So those cultural identity issues are becoming the fault lines in American politics now. Non-economic issues, I don't think as much. Um, and the country is very divided. But Mona's right, like really to stress here, I mean, the core, uh, Donald Trump's legacy has been enshrined in the court. He got very lucky. He got to nominate three justices. So now you have a 6-3 conservative majority on that court. Um, and very young justice. Amy Coney Barrett is only 48. And as Mona mentioned there, just to pick up on this, it was fascinating during her confirmation hearing, Lindsey Graham, this the Republican senator who was a chairing of the committee, made the point that she, now I'm, mis- I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but kind of like, you're a model for conservative women everywhere in this country. You're showing that women who have conservative views can take their seat at this table. You know, that idea, that Margaret Thatcher idea of the conservative woman and there's a place for her. I thought that was very interesting. Um, and uh, she now is going to become, I mean, the irony that she's the person who replaces Ruth Bader, Bader Ginsburg. I mean, you couldn't, you know, they're, they're epitomizing two very different views. Um, but, you know, very young, these justices. So um, it's going to really, and, and picking up what Simone says, you know, does politics, but how do you affect change? Does politics matter? I, judges matter in America. The Supreme Court justice is making, they're making decisions that absolutely affect people's lives. Where they can, you know, issues around school choice, 
uh, issues, maybe even on contraception now and who can get access to it, on gay rights, who you can marry, and obviously abortion. So, you know, that should be why people in America vote, because that is the example of why your vote matters in America, because look what would have happened if Hillary Clinton had got in. We'd have a completely different Supreme Court. So I think that's, you know, is going to last long after Donald Trump ends his tenure at the White House. Simone, where do we go with this? So we now have, as Suzanne pointed out and Mona had pointed out, structurally there are terrible things happening. I, the, the, the fact that the Senate hasn't changed is, is really, really dismaying. Um, the fact that the, the Democrats have lost uh, seats in the House is dismaying. So where do we go from here? I mean, the fact that Amy Coney Barrett is on that is on in that court for perhaps another 40, 50 years. The, the damage has been done, as Mona has pointed out. But what do we do now? Yeah, when you when you say that, I'm thinking back to the last time I, I, I sat and watched something like this uh, and there were tears in my kitchen. And it was Brett Kavanaugh, the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. Um, and actually so much has happened in the last four years. The lies and the the the. Um, the endorsement of that sort of sexual violence and uh, misogyny have, have come so thick and fast that we're, you have to be careful not to become immune to it. Um, I think the, the way through this is grassroots politics as opposed to party politics. This will come from Black Lives Matter, the feminist movement, the grassroots movements here in Ireland. And we need to remember that equality and rights that are very hard fought for and very hard to win are very easily lost. I mean, look at what's happening in Poland around abortion. Look what's happened in Ireland around the the sealing of the, the mother and baby homes archives in the last few weeks, how the last Magdalene laundry and public ownership the wish of the survivors was for it to become a uh, representation of, of uh, the slavery of those women in Ireland was nearly sold to a Japanese hotel chain. So I think at all times, um, vigilance, activism, and be very wary of cheerfulness. <laughs> of course, you have to have hope. We would all die without it. Um, but the energy and the anger and the the feelings coming from this, whether Joe Biden gets in or not, need to be harnessed and, and really ridden right the way through everywhere. Mona, for all that we're talking about, sort of with, with depressingly about the structure of things, a number of important things have happened. Um, a few, a few, there are a few reasons to be cheerful. Uh, for example, the state of Missouri will have, for the first time in its history, a black woman representing it in Congress after Cory Bush's victory. All four members of the Trump's so-called squad of Democratic Congresswomen have handily won re-election. And the first openly transgender person to be elected as a state senator uh, has arrived. So they're all good things. And I presume they're coming from grassroots movements, you know, in, in a very necessary way. They are making their way into the into the mainstream. Absolutely. All those um, victors that you've mentioned are exactly what I've been talking about. Exactly the kind of feminist victories that are um, intersectional, that um, dismantle patriarchy, that that insist that I will not be 
this, you know, cog, this endless cog that in return for a few crumbs of power, effectively, you know, run your agenda. Because when we're talking about someone like Cory Bush in Missouri, Cory Bush came to prominence as an activist during the Ferguson protests after Michael Brown was killed by the police. So in 2014, the squad are all young women of color of various backgrounds who have very progressive leftist politics. A transgender senator who reminds us, you know, again, you know, when we're talking about pussies and when we're talking about misogyny, you know, who are we talking about? Which women are we talking about? Which women's rights and which women's safety are we talking about? Are we talking about cisgender white women or are we talking about women, including trans women? So we we have to, exp- we, we celebrate. There are, all of those I do celebrate. I also celebrate, you know, the, the queer indigenous uh, politicians who have been elected because this this is in a, in a country where indigenous land was stolen and indigenous people were genocided. So there are, you know, bits and pieces to celebrate. But, you know, they are a reminder of exactly what we need to do in order to counter this conservative victory. I think looking ahead, what what we, what I insist we all recognize is that globally, or Patriarchal authoritarians are on the rise. Fascism is on the rise. Patriarchy is on the rise. And all of that was energized and enabled by having Trump in the White House. Trump is gone now, but the conservative remains in the United States. So we have to look at each other as allies and we have to recognize where that kind of intersectional feminism is taking place. And we have to leave behind us this very simple and naive Yay, women, I will vote for any woman anywhere. No, I will not. Because Poland, for a while, the the far right um, party that is now the ruling party in Poland was led by a woman, a woman who delivered women's bodies to the fascist trinity of the church, the far right government and the far right fascist groups on the streets, beating women and queer people fighting for their lib- uh, for their liberation. So let's look at all of those newcomers who have been elected and understand why they're so powerful, because they are intersectional and because they fight patriarchy. That's the fight that we need to do going forward. Suzanne, I'm reminded of something I heard you mentioning this morning about the QAnon woman who has been elected to the House under the, under, under the Republican banner, so, which sort of confirms the notion that all women aren't, aren't him. Yeah, that's Marjorie Taylor Greene. She's, um, she was running for a seat in Georgia and um, she, she was elected. And she is a proud supporter of the QAnon conspiracy movement. Um, as far as I'm aware, she posed in one picture kind of beside AOC with a gun. And um, already when she won her primary earlier in the year, we saw some members of Congress, Republican members of Congress, trying to distance themselves from her. Really didn't think she was going to get in, and she has now. Of course, Donald Trump did not distance himself from her. Um, so, um, so look, her arrival suggests, I mean, she's only going to be one person, but, um, you know, it's interesting. She's already been on Twitter. Twitter kind of censored her, according to her. Um, and uh, she's she's going to make a bit of a splash, I think, when she arrives here in January. Suzanne, have we heard the last of the Trumps for a while, do you think? Or are they just going to going to gather pace? Oh, no, we haven't, I don't think. Uh, there's lots of theories about about the, the, the Trump uh, plan. So one of them, which I'm beginning to think there might be something in, is that if Trump is not re-elected, that he's going to look into um, some kind of setting up some kind of right wing conservative channel. 
So this uh, break we've kind of seen between Trump and Fox in the last while, to a certain extent, you know, could could be onto something here. And particularly this row that seems to have happened on election night between Trump and and the Fox network about calling Arizona. Um, let's not forget, Donald Trump made a lot of money out of The Apprentice. And by from what we can see from the New York Times investigation of his taxes, you know, he is not doing, apart from any legal issues he may become entwined in, in the state of New York, uh, you know, his his investments are not doing well. His, his golf courses, hotels, etc. So it could be a money, uh, you know, cash cow for Trump. A lot of speculation about the Trump children. Um, Ivanka, I mean, we could have a whole podcast on Ivanka, Cathy. Um, but talk about, you know, the conservative woman's pinup at this stage. You know, Ivanka and Jared, you know, at one point were Democrats. She's obviously now confirmed she is definitely Republican. She votes Republican. And she has been campaigning for her father uh, throughout the country, having events down in Florida. Obviously worked because he won Florida. Um, then she's got her brother, Donald Trump Jr. I visited, I attended one of his campaign events uh, myself. He's probably one of the most active of uh, the of the siblings. And, you know, rumors about him maybe running for something in New York. Uh, governor, mayor, maybe. Uh, so look, I think the Trump brand, the Trump family, no, it's by far not the last we've heard from them. Um, uh, Ivanka in particular, I think, is one to watch. It's it's quite interesting. And she's managed to kind of, you know, exist in this kind of haze of Instagram and uh, without actually getting embroiled in any of the chaos and controversies of her father's administration. And yet, like, she's got a the office in the West Wing you know, she's just one to watch. She's a quiet one. Um, so, yeah, we'll see what happens there. But no, they're definitely not gone away. I mean, the whole big question is what happens to Trumpism after Trump? And I think the the level of vote for him in this election suggests that he is onto something strong in the country. So now it's going to be about how he challenge, channels that. Will it be politically or maybe will it be through a, through a media uh, adventure of some kind? OK, Suzanne, I'm desperate to cheer ourselves up before we fold. Um there, there, there is talk of queues of lawyers lining up to prosecute Trump on one charge or another. Is there no truth in any of that? Well, he is. I mean, his legal woes are, are quite serious. Um, so, I mean, there was a lot of speculation here about it. Could he pardon himself, uh, which is possible? Could he appoint Mike Pence and get Mark Pence to uh, pardon him? Very possible. Um, as far as I'm aware... Even if he was pardoned, it would only protect him really from federal cases. And he, the, the, the big worry for him is the, the Southern District of New York, the New York authorities have been looking into his taxes, um, have been looking into his business adventures. His former lawyer and fixer, Michael Cohen, who metaphorically knows where the bodies are buried, is now cooperating with them. He's already done time. Um, you know, that's a worry, I'd say, for Donald Trump. And at one of his rallies recently talked about he mused about leaving the country. You know what, Cathy, maybe he'll arrive to Doombeg. Who knows? But um, we did hear in that, <laughs> in, that, in that New York Times article that he is, they looked at his foreign bank accounts and they said um, in a loaded way that he had a bank account in China and only Britain and Ireland are the only two other places, which I thought was interesting. Um, but no, look, those legal challenges are a worry, I think, for him. He's not in a good financial position, it seems to be. So let's see how he deals with that once we get over this election. OK, I'm going to sort of the last questions for Simon and, and, and Mona. Um, I am trying to get something cheerful out of this before we wind up. Uh, so can I suggest that Joe Biden in the White House will come with some feminist credentials? I mean, he's, he has a good record, for example, on domestic violence. He does. He he created the 
position of uh, the advisor to the White House on, on violence against women, who I was working with in 2016, it was at the time, uh, Lynn Rosenthal, and I think that position is probably gone, at least, um, or it wasn't filled, whether it was removed. And so there is at least the hope that there would be a return, if Biden wins, um, to that level. But how effective it's going to be able to be, I I. I don't know. And also, how do we address the, as I said earlier, the the endorsement of these ideas, the endorsement of white supremacy and of misogyny? How do we start to really understand how politics is failing to change our culture, how all of this um, is, is failing to really dismantle dominance culture and, and patriarchy and Maybe, maybe that will be, maybe it will be the beginning of that. Um, but uh, in the meantime, I'm I'm going to listen to Martin Luther King, who said, "We do not have the luxury of cooling off. Um, we do not have the luxury of of celebrating." To which you will absolutely agree, Mona. <laughs> absolutely, Kathy. Well, look, the United States yesterday uh, topped a hundred thousand cases of COVID nineteen. So, and you know, when the pandemic began, uh, many of us were trying to look for something positive, but it was really important to understand that positivity can also be toxic. So we have to avoid the temptation, resist the temptation of being cheerful for the sake of being cheerful. Let's, so I'm a tenaciously optimistic person and my tenacity comes from feminism. So this is what I will offer you. I think what Donald Trump did other than being the useful idiot for the conservatives in the United States and hand them this victory, is that Donald Trump said out loud what many of them would whisper. And he unleashed this out loud conversation that many would whisper. Now we know, you know, we've known, many of us have known for a long time and now more people know. My way of going forward and my way of holding on to my tenacious optimism is feminism. Feminism is the solution, whether Biden is in office or Trump is in office. And this is a feminism that defines itself not as equality with men. I want something much bigger than equality with men. I want to be free. I want to be free of patriarchy and its fuckery. So my feminism is a robust, unapologetic, incredibly rude, fuck you, you will not get away with this feminism. This is how I am staying tenaciously optimistic, that this is the era of feminism as the biggest opponent to this ascension of patriarchal authoritarians. As the patriarchal authoritarians are becoming more powerful around the world, with the United States now, their unabashed leader, so we too, feminists, must be on the ascendance and we must look that patriarchy in the eye and we tell that patriarchy, we will fucking destroy you. In that language, nothing nice, nothing polite. I am not a nice feminist because there is nothing nice about patriarchal authoritarianism. So that's how I gain my tenacity and my optimism. Yeah. And actually, can I revise my answer, Cathy? Because that's what makes me cheerful. That's what makes me cheerful. That I've, because of this, that I have met and got to know feminists like Mona, that we speak in the way, uh, in equal measure to the brutal way that we are spoken to and that we are treated. Um, And that gives me great hope. Suzanne, we're leaving now. Uh, have you a last message for the for Irish women? 
Well, I suppose um, what Simone was discussing there is so interesting, but I suppose I'm just taken with the fact that, you know, maybe politics does matter. And I know we're being quite negative here about some of the outcomes of this election. But as I said, particularly in this country with the courts, um, I think it's Donald Trump one positive may have just shaken people out of their complacency and shaken people out of their slumber and said, you know, sometimes you need a shock to realise your rights, uh, your civil rights and the kind of society you live in. Um, and I think that it's been a political awakening for a lot of people. So I think that's something positive we can take from the Donald Trump years. That certainly is. Thank you, Suzanne. Thank you, Simon. And thank you, Mona. That was really <laughs> very invigorating. Thank you so much. And good luck to us all. Well, thanks so much to Mona Eltahawi, Suzanne Lynch, Simon George and Cathy Sheridan for a really Excellent and invigorating conversation. I feel so alive after listening to it. And definitely, um, I think we all need to think about that fuck you brand of feminism that Mona uh, is talking about. While sometimes it can feel people aren't into it, I feel it's the tone of it is wrong. But in a way, these things are too urgent for us to sit back and not get angry about. So, yeah, like Simon said, the vigilance is so important. Um, I really, really enjoyed that conversation. Tenacious optimism is what we all need to strive for. Uh, my cheerful and optimistic outlook is grand, but as we've heard, it's it's simply not enough if we really, really want to change things. So I'm very grateful to our panellists. That's all we have time for. The podcast is produced by me. Roisin Ingle, also by Suzanne Brennan and by Jennifer Ryan, who put that particular episode together. So thanks very much, Jennifer. And JJ Vernon, as always, was on sound. Mind yourselves, and I will talk to you next time. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.